0: Welcome to the Creative South Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. I want to congratulate this week's guest, photographer Helena Price, on the recent birth of her daughter. Mom and daughter are doing well. Helena and I chat about how she went from working in PR to turning her hobby of photography into a career, translating the skills she learned in PR to assets as a business owner running her own studio, how the idea for her Techies series came to be, and the attention it garnered about diversity in the tech sector. And more, all right after this. It's no secret that I love Jack Prince. They're a longtime sponsor of the podcast and Creative South. Plus, they do great work. Whether they're making our pop-up displays and tablecloths or printing notebooks, Jack Prince is always there when we need them. This year, they are printing new Creative South t-shirts for me and the podcast stickers. They have a coupon code on the back that gives you a great discount on all of their products, just in time for Creative South. Speaking of stickers, Jack Prince will print any kind, shape, size, or stock, including full-color stickers with full-color liner prints for you to use as product labels, promotions, bumper stickers, hang tags, business cards, and more. Right now, you can get 500 3x3-inch die-cut stickers starting at 149 Plus, Jack Prince is giving Creative South Podcast listeners 15% off all orders over $25 when you use promo code SOUTH15OFF at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. If you like the Creative South podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Every dollar helps us cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. With options starting at just $1 per month, you can help support the podcast and even wind up with some cool Creative South podcast swag. When you become a Creative South patron, you'll get access to exciting Creative South news before anyone else, a shout-out on the podcast thanking you for your support. Creative South podcast stickers and t-shirts. So, please help support the podcast by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash South. Helena, thanks for joining me tonight.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So I'm I'm very glad that you didn't go into labor before we were um, scheduled to talk.
1: (laughs) Me too. This week has been the last week of work for me. And I've had, you know, I have two big photo shoots this week. I just did one yesterday and I have one tomorrow. And I've just been saying like, please don't go into labor on set. Like maybe I've even said, you know, on the last shoot, if I go into labor on set, it's my first kid, so it'll probably take a while so I can at least finish the shoot and then I'll go to the hospital. but man. I, would,
0: I would highly recommend don't finish the shoot go to the hospital.
1: <laughs> I know this is a, the, the curse of a, a workaholic that happens to be pregnant.
0: Yeah <laughs> this, this, yeah how are you, how are you gonna deal with uh, maternity leave?
1: Um, well, you know I'm my own boss. which is kind of a blessing and a curse in this situation, right? Like, I don't get paid maternity leave. Uh So I, you know, if I don't work...
0: you're an American, so that really doesn't happen a whole lot anyways.
1: This is true. This is true. It's pretty common. So, you know, if I I take a bunch of time off, that means I don't get paid. So there's definitely, you know, a strong reason for me to keep working for that reason. Sure. Um, But there's also the good news is, you know, being my own boss, I have a really flexible schedule. So I can, you know, me, quote unquote, going back to work means me working on my laptop in my bed, mm-hmm. um, with a baby on my body or maybe going on set, you know, one day a week or I'm really in control of that, which is nice. So, so far. <laughs> you haven't
0: had the kid yet. But...
1: <laughs> I know <laughs> you like control, huh? Um, <laughs> So the plan right now is, you know, I'm, I'm doing my last shoot on Friday Uh if I could, you know, I'd work till the last minute, but again, very strong risk of going into labor on set. So I'm going to chill the last three weeks, like maybe think about being a mom and then have this baby. And my plan is to stay off set in April Mm -hmm. and, you know, just be a vegetable, be a milk machine, and then I'll start <laughs> taking on set jobs in May. Um, so I probably won't ever stop working. You know, I'm, I'm sure every day I'll be doing a tiny bit of work. Uh-huh. But I've had many, many friends with kids more than me. Like, you think you're going to be able to just do emails all day and you're not. So I'm nope. definitely wrapping my brain around that already.
0: Yeah, you, you, when you get on that every two hour schedule, it will, uh, you'll turn into a zombie.
1: Yeah. So I hear. So I hear.
0: Uh my my kid I've got twin 9-year-olds and I still remember those guys. <gasps> so
1: Oh man. Yeah. I I have a f- good friend with twins and um just watching them raise those twins, I'm like, wow, I'm so lucky to just be having one. <laughs> it looks so easy compared to that.
0: I don't know any difference, so <laughs> I I yeah. can't speak from experience. <laughs> well,
1: you pulled it off.
0: <laughs> yes, I'm still alive and so are they. So that's a that's a good start. Oh, man. <laughs> so let, let's kind of dive into things. Where did you grow up?
1: Uh, I am from a small town in the south. Um, it's called New Bern. It's in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. It is uh, the original capital of North Carolina. Oh, wow. We are known for inventing Pepsi. We're very proud of that. Gotcha. We are also home to Nicholas Sparks of The Notebook fame um, and basically a bunch of cheesy romance movies based on cheesy romance novels that he's written.
0: If, if Ryan Gosling had an acting pedigree, it's in those movies, right? Basically, yeah. yes.
1: Yeah. Um, those are basically our claims to fame. But gotcha. tiny little town, close to the coast, um, you know, was pretty bored with it growing up, but mm-hmm. uh, I can appreciate it a little more now.
0: Gotcha. When you were growing up, what type of kid were you? Were you sporty kid or arty kid? Oh, what were you neither.
1: Thinking? Neither, actually. Really? Sports terrified me. I think I was on a softball team for like two weeks, and I quit before the first game because <laughs> I was. it was like so terrifying to me, mm-hmm. the thought of um, just going into battle against another team. I couldn't handle it, so I quit. <laughs> um, and then, you know, I ended up, doing dance and, um, like being on the dance team in high school and like dancing at halftime to like really dope rap songs. That was about the extent of my athleticism. And then art, you know, we didn't really have much exposure to the idea of like being an art kid. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, so I wasn't really that either. Like we were told, you know, art is, is what you do in art class and Mm -hmm. if you want to do more art you become an art teacher and then you teach an art class so that was kind of my understanding of art growing up in in that town um that said i i did take pictures okay i started you know when i was six years old and i took pictures from six you know all the way through adulthood so i guess i was maybe a creative kid and didn't know it but i i definitely didn't uh I didn't identify as that. So I was kind of just this, like, I don't even know. I was just, like, I honestly think I was a very neutral kid who really, really tried hard to blend in and not stand out. That's kind of the best way I can set myself up.
0: (laughs) I understand that. So when you get out of high school, do you go to college? What do you end up doing?
1: Yeah, so I, I knew by the time I was like fifteen mm-hmm. that I wanted to kind of get out of town. Sure. Um and not everybody gets out of New Bern. Um, but some people do and and usually the farthest they go is um like a, a college in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So the only colleges I applied for were in North Carolina. And I actually really wanted to go to NC State University because they had a design school. Mm-hmm. And I had discovered this. I don't even know how like, you know, the the internet found its way into my world (laughs) right around like eighth or ninth grade. Uh And so the internet was kind of my path into learning about creative things. Like I learned about architecture. I learned about, you know, I found these like digital exhibits from the MoMA that I was obsessed with and I would just go and look at them over and over again. I, I learned about graphic design and packaging design and all these different kinds of design and I was like I want to do this stuff like I don't know how to do it but but this is all super cool and I want to do it so I applied to NC State with no declared major thinking like I'll just go to state and I'll figure out how to get into design school
2: mm-hmm.
1: um so I ended up going to state never got into design school <laughs> because I had no portfolio and was like too terrified to even begin a portfolio um so I ended up after I think a year choosing PR
2: as okay. my major.
1: Um mostly because I still didn't know what I wanted to do mm-hmm. and PR not only sounded pretty easy, it also sounded like it might be the most useful no matter what career I chose. Okay. So, that's kind of how I went that direction.
0: What made you think that was going to be the most useful?
1: Well, I didn't want to be pigeonholed, right? Like if sure. I went and like I loved math. Like I'm a secret math whiz. And <laughs> math is really fun to me. And I was doing all these really advanced math classes as electives when I got to college. But I figured like, well, if I go into a math program, or like, you know, science or something like that, I'm going to be pigeonholed into doing math. Sure. So maybe I don't want to do math for a living, because I don't know, what would I didn't know what to do with that. So for me, it was like, you know, maybe I could, be on the business side of design or maybe I could work in music cause I liked music. Like maybe I could work in any of these industries and, and working in communications sounds like I could maybe get a communications job in any of those worlds. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how my, my strategy went at the time.
0: Gotcha. When, when you got out of school, what, what did you end up doing?
1: Let's see. Well, the last semester of college, I went on a trip to San Francisco with a friend. Um, She kind of called out of the blue and she's like, you know, I figure that you're probably going to say yes to this. I'm going (laughs) to ask, do you want to go to San Francisco for spring break? Um, And I was like, sure. So I, I knew that I was interested in San Francisco already and I knew that I wanted to move out of North Carolina after college. Right. And I'd kind of, you know, traveled a lot um, when I was touring, as a photographer with bands in college. So I'd I'd been able to sample all these cities and San Francisco was pretty cool. The West coast was pretty cool. So I went on a spring break trip, um, with this friend and, you know, by halfway through the trip, I was sitting at Tartine. This sounds so cliche now, um, (laughs) but I was sitting at this trendy bakery in San Francisco. But what's so funny is at the time I didn't know that bakeries existed in real life. Like, sure. You know, in North Carolina, where I lived, it was a little bit of a food desert. So, you know, I we like bread right at the I grocery understand. store. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you you get your bread at the grocery store, but it's like corporate bread, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't know that like local businesses would ever bake bread. I, I just I, I couldn't believe it. So I'm sitting at this bakery, uh, you know, in San Francisco, and I'm eating this magical food, and I've been eating magical food all week. Um, you know, at the time, like really, my idea of of like even um, diverse food was like Italian, you know, at the Olive Garden. Like I just really did not. I was not hey, exposed your family. much, right? <laughs> and so I, you know, I'm sitting there and I'm like, wow, I can't believe bakeries are real. Mm-hmm. And I've been exposed to all this amazing stuff all week. And I've been driving up and down Highway One. Nature is magical. Culture is magical. Food is magical. Like. Now that I know that this exists, I don't know if I can go back. Like, I think I need to be here.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I basically got back and was like, I'm going to move to San Francisco. And I I tend, like I have a, a definite trend in my life sure. of making some pretty significant life decisions without really measuring the practicality of it. <laughs> but I just do it anyway. And so I, you know... I found a band that was touring
2: mm-hmm.
1: across um, a Raleigh band, and I asked if I could, you know, tag along as a photographer. And I basically left. I, I think I went, you know, to spring break in March or April. In June, I left North Carolina right after I graduated, mm-hmm. and you know, spent six weeks driving across the country and ended in San Francisco.
0: Gotcha. So yeah, I, I want to back up a little bit because you said in college you started going on tour with bands, taking pictures. How did how did that happen? How did you stumble upon that?
1: I loved music. I, I still do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I grew up playing piano kind of obsessively. Stopped doing that once I got to college and discovered drinking. But <laughs> I was still like, <laughs> really? I know. But I was still super into music. And, you know, I, I started working in bars when I was 18. Okay. Because uh, I needed to, you know, eat and pay for school and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I was already working downtown as a teenager, like, you know, serving drinks till two in the morning. And I met a lot of people in the service industry and in Raleigh, the service industry and music and art and food are all really, really intertwined because mm-hmm. it's not a huge creative class
2: sure. and
1: and so everybody kind of bands together. It's it's amazing. Raleigh is still amazing for that reason. Mm-hmm. So, by working in the service industry, I ended up meeting a lot of people who also happen to be musicians, who also happen to be creatives. And by the time I was 19, I was pretty involved in the music scene.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not really in any sort of paid capacity, but I just I've always been this kind of person that really loves meeting people and ends up meeting everybody and then, you know, ends up introducing other people to other people. And I just get really excited by like participating in the social fabric of something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I would introduce bands that I liked to booking agents or bar owners, or, you know, I just started getting involved and, and then I don't really know what happened, but at some point, um, one band was going on the road during a summer break and I wanted to go. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And so, and I basically was like a photographer slash MySpace blogger for them. (laughs) (laughs) And I would every day, you know, take pictures and write like these really elaborate stories from the road and post to their MySpace. And Mm -hmm. it was super fun. It was like, man, the, there's nothing like it. It was crazy and amazing. And we met different people every day. And we were so broke. Oh, my God, we slept on so many random people's floors, (laughs) and lived on like $5 a day per diems. And, you know, it was it was not glamorous, but it was just amazing. Sure. And that was what I did basically every break that I had.
0: When, when did you, I mean, I'm assuming that's kind of how you started honing photography skills. I know you said you were taking, you'd been taking pictures since you were about six. But, you know, how did you kind of develop your skill at it other than, because photography is very technical too. It's not just pointing and shooting and stuff.
1: Well, I certainly was not technically advanced at this time. Um, You know, the first 15 years or so, I was shooting only on disposable cameras from Walmart. So that was literally, yeah, it was literally like, press a button, Mm -hmm. use the flash, um, take the camera back to Walmart and get a digital CD of the scans and throw away the negatives. Mm -hmm. Um, That was my process for all of my kind of grade school years sure. and then in college I got I think when I was like 19 I got kind of like it wasn't a professional SLR it was kind of one of those cameras that's in between it's like a digital camera that's kind of bulky mm-hmm. so it looks like it does a really good job um I think it was maybe five hundred dollars it was like a big deal Um, but I got it and that was kind of when I really started getting into digital, Mm -hmm. still didn't know what I was doing. Um, (laughs) but it definitely, it definitely changed how I shot, especially because it was digital. Like when that happens, editing becomes as much of the process as shooting, you know, like, and by editing, I mean, culling down what you've shot. So Um, you know, that kind of decision-making of what you decide to keep in some ways is just as important as to what you choose to shoot. Mm -hmm. So that really helped me start figuring out like, you know, what am I, what am I drawn to? What am I trying to say? You know, I'm writing these stories from the road. What, what photos really correspond well to the story that I'm trying to tell? Mm -hmm. Um, That's when I, I kind of started marrying, um, you know, my kind of communications PR (laughs) writing Um, skill set and my photography skill set, which is totally a theme that's stuck with me forever. Sure. Um, but yeah, didn't get technically savvy until I was probably like, didn't learn how to shoot a camera on manual until maybe the very end of college. Um, when another photographer friend was like, you should be using these buttons instead. Um, and then I started learning, uh, how to get more, uh, technically sound.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. So did you, at that point with your photographer friend, did you kind of start uh, getting mentored by them of, you know, this is how light works. This is how this works.
2: No. No?
1: The the internet has been my biggest mentor for sure. Okay. Um, Yeah. I mean, definitely I was told by that same photographer friend, he's like, I think you're going to do a good job because you understand light. And I can tell that from the way that you shoot. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was really helpful to me in my last year in Raleigh, kind of looking at my work and, and saying like, oh, you know, this is really strong. Like these don't totally make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, That was super helpful. And then when I moved to San Francisco, it really turned into like, just learning as I go. Mm-hmm. Um, and the internet, you know, taught me about aperture. It taught me about shutter speed. It taught me about how everything works together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, you know, from there it was just, it's like a constant, I mean, that's still how I learned to this day. It's like practice, practice, practice. If I need to figure something out, ask the school of the internet and <laughs> then practice that. And then, you know, repeat, repeat, repeat.
0: Gotcha. So, you know, f- Fast forwarding back to San Francisco, when when you move out to San Francisco, you know what are you what are you doing then? Because you, you for for all intents and purposes, you you sort of hitchhiked across the country just with <laughs> with a band in a, in a way. Um, yeah. You know w- what do you start doing to earn money and make a living?
1: Yeah. So. That was a big question mark when I arrived. Um, the good news is I drove alongside the band. So I had a car uh-huh. and I was able to sell it as soon as I got to San Francisco. Cause I basically arrived at San Francisco with like $40. Oh. Like it was not a well thought out plan. Um, <laughs> so I managed to sell the car almost immediately when I got to San Francisco. Um, I think I got maybe like I don't know, $9,000 for it or something. So I was able to like, you know, get an apartment on Craigslist and live on that money. And then I happened to meet my next door neighbor who was a musician.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I was like, well, what a coincidence. Like I you know the ha- have worked with music. Um, you know, I'm like really into the internet. I also had a hunch that I wanted to work in technology mm-hmm. at some point because I loved Tech and I loved the internet and, you know, started with MySpace and then got into Twitter. And I was really into the internet of things and was kind of like, ah, oh, maybe that's kind of my future. So, long story short, I ended up doing some freelance work for this musician. His record label ended up hiring me. And that was my first job oh, wow. when I got to San Francisco, just kind of like freelance PR and technology consulting for this record label. That didn't last very long. Sure. Um, but in the meantime, I, I Googled coffee shops where techies hang out (laughs) in San Francisco and found one at the time. It was called Epicenter. And Mm -hmm. I basically decided I was going to work out of Epicenter on my laptop every day. Mm -hmm. And I was going to meet everyone I could in that coffee shop, just casually. Um, and you know, like make friends with the baristas, make friends with whoever, like the regulars are, and, you know, just kind of see where that took me. And after a few months, um, ended up getting an intro through one of the other regulars at the coffee shop to this chick who owned a PR firm in Silicon Valley. And then that was my second job. So then that was kind of my official entrance into Silicon Valley where I ended up working for several years.
0: Gotcha. So you're, you're doing PR and taking pictures on the side. At at what point do you decide to make this a full-time gig of photography?
1: Well, I kind of stopped shooting while I worked in tech. Like, I got really buried in tech because, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I felt like I had to, really. Um, I took, you know, my career really seriously. And, you know, working in startups is kind of a, a intense life commitment. You know, mm-hmm. you're expected to work like 10 plus hours a day, basically seven days a week. Sure. Um, there's really, you don't really turn off. Um, And I was really young and, you know, I I didn't really come from this normal Silicon Valley pedigree. Um, I really felt like I should be, you know, I I had to prove myself. Mm -hmm. So I was just working my butt off in tech for, you know, for several years Mm
2: -hmm.
1: from 2009 to 2013. And so I took photos here and there, like I would dabble, but it just, I couldn't do it. It just, I didn't have the time.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: so fast forward to 2012, I had just moved to New York and I was working, you know, i just taken this job running communications and biz dev for the startup. And I arrived and it just wasn't the job that I thought it was going to be. And I was pretty bummed about it. Sure. And I was like, Oh my God, I just like uprooted my entire life and I'm working at another job that I don't really love in tech and I'm kind of depressed and I like need to figure out something to do to like offset all of this anxiety and sadness that I'm having around this. <laughs> so I made a new year's resolution to start shooting again because uh-huh shooting was like the one thing that always made me super happy. So I figured, all right, I'm going to spend the weekends and I'm going I'm to shoot all weekend, like anything. I don't even know what. And so I'll shoot so much that every night when I come home from work, I'll have a set of photos to edit every night so I can have like the worst day at work and then I'll get home and then I'll have something to do that makes me happy. And hopefully that will make me less sad mm-hmm. overall. So that was the plan. And I bought a used Mark II from a friend in New York. Um, Gotcha. And then I had like, you know, a real big girl camera. And I started shooting and I just shot so much. Like I made thousands and thousands and thousands of photos Mm -hmm. in months. And what's super weird is that I was a lot better than I was four years prior, which is weird. Cause I didn't actually practice much sure. in those four years. Um, and so it just, all of a sudden I'm like making all this work and I didn't really have a plan. You know, I seemed to gravitate towards environmental portraiture,
2: mm-hmm. which
1: I'd never really done formal portraiture before. Um, but suddenly I was super into that. So I shot tons and tons and tons of portraits and, you know, started putting together a website where, you know, I, I put them up and I started sharing them on Tumblr, which was like where you sh- shared your photos at the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, um, and then by April, I had, you know, this kind of robust portfolio that I'd put together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that point it still didn't cross my mind that I would be a photographer for a living. Sure. I I had all these other friends that were photographers for a living, but it was like, oh, well, you know, I can't do that. Like I'm not as good as them and I, you know, like that that's just not going to happen for me. Right. This will just be like, you know, a thing that I do and I'm I'll I'll be continuing to work in tech. Maybe I can get find some job at the intersection and be like, you know, a a branding person or a creative consultant, or I don't know, Mm -hmm. still figuring all that out. But then I actually had someone reach out to me out of the blue. Um, She's now a good friend, but she, I didn't know her at all at the time. And she reached out and said, Hey, um, you know, I work for Square. And I stumbled upon your portfolio. And we think that your work would be a really great fit for a project that we're doing in New York where we're doing environmental portraits of our vendors Mm -hmm. in the square marketplace. And, you know, it was a really small project. It like barely paid my rent, but I was like, Oh my God, like square wants to hire me. Like they just paid my rent and that gives me a whole other month to find another job that could pay (laughs) my rent. And Oh my God, I can get paid taking photos. And that was basically like the moment where I was like, I'm gonna quit my job and I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can do this. And so I quit my job in Mm -hmm. April and, you know, did this job. And I had, you know, I decided I would move back to California Mm
2: -hmm.
1: um, because, you know, I'd spent years in California already. I had this huge network that I'd built. I also had a hunch that there was a market for photography in Silicon Valley that no one was looking at yet. Mm -hmm. And I was the one person who was looking. And so I just had a hunch that that would be a really good thing for me to go pursue. Sure. And so I'm, I kind of just went for it and boy, those first couple of months were really hard um, because (laughs) I didn't have any money saved up. So it was, it was really like I lived on my friend's couch for like six months. I, overdrafted my bank account quite a bit. Um, There were lots (laughs) of tears. But after, you know, a couple of months, I got recommended for a couple of other photo jobs. Mm -hmm. And those jobs kind of got a lot of attention. And then within just a few months, I was booked solid as a photographer in Silicon Valley. And that's kind of how it started. Gotcha. So,
0: you know, alongside this, when do you start taking on more personal projects that aren't like commission-based and aren't necessarily going out and paying the bills but are just more artistic on the side?
1: Oh, that was down the road for sure. Yeah. The first few years, I was just figuring out how to make a living sure. as a photographer. Um, just like, you know, there were plenty of jobs. I was getting them. Mm-hmm. And all I could think about was like, how do I... How do I grow this business? How do I keep doing this work? How do I learn what I'm doing? You know, Mm -hmm. because so much of it was like, I didn't even feel like I knew what I was doing yet. And here I am as a professional photographer.
2: Sure.
1: So a lot of it was just drowning in the actual paid work part of photography and figuring Uh that out. Um, When I started thinking about side projects was um, not till a couple of years ago in 2016. Okay. So At that point, you know, I'd been working as a photographer for three years. The business had grown into this big thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually got represented by uh, an agent. So I was kind of on this new tier of photography that was doing these big commercial productions. Um, But I actually had a lot of time because having an agent means that the agent takes over your business.
2: Sure.
1: So there was I went from like full time hustler to like twiddling my thumbs a bit. Mm -hmm. and being like okay like I need stuff to do I'm used to running my own business um so that's when I was like huh you know what can I do with my time while I'm between jobs and that's where that's kind of where techies came from my first project Mm -hmm. um I was you know I've wanted to do work that really melds my interests in, you know, storytelling and communications and art and, you know, wanting to do something decent, uh, for humanity Mm -hmm. for a long time. But, um, right around, I just didn't know what I would do it on, you know, because there's infinite choices. And so really right around new year's, um, 2000, 16 or, you know, 2015, 2016, I, it just kind of hit me one day, like, you know, okay, I'm going to do a project. It's going to do, it's going to be a big, big interview project Mm -hmm. and it's going to be on the technology industry because duh, "Duh, that's my world. Um, technology like Silicon Valley is my world. And I think that it's going through a really interesting time, Mm -hmm. um, and I want to just explore that. And that's really where it started. Um, I mold on it for like a week because, you know, every time anyone does something, usually their brain goes to dark places. And I'm like, is anyone <laughs> going to care? Or like, you know, are people going to hate it? You know, there's a, min- a bunch of reasons why people don't do things. But I sat on it for like a week. Um, I ran it by a couple of good friends and they were like, yeah, you should do this. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So, and then I think January 4th, I put out a call for subjects that said, you know, I want to do a project on Silicon Valley and I'm interested in finding, you know, a hundred stories of people that are uh, underrepresented in the industry. Mm -hmm. And I put out, you know, a Google form on the internet and within two weeks I had 500 applications. And then I realized, oh shit. Like, this might be a bigger project than I thought. So that's how that started.
0: Gotcha. What made you want to do the interview portion of it? Because it's kind of, I mean, you, you, oh, could, you could have just sat back and just done, you know, photographs and let that completely tell the story. But, but you did this interview portion where you found out a lot of backstory and, you know found out opinions and all this stuff. What what was behind that?
1: Well, you know, I'm actually a big believer that photos usually don't tell the whole story. I would agree. Um, it could tell part of a story. It could tell, you know, my gaze mm-hmm. and my impression of, you know, how I see this person.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but, you know, I'm uh, even in my commercial work, I stress with clients, like context is everything. Mm-hmm. Like I can go and make you, some photos sure they'll look pretty but you know they'll be even better if i understand what your goals are as a company or like what your mock-up copy is gonna say or Mm -hmm. you know there's all or like is it what device is it going to be on there's just context is so important and when it's combined with a photo it makes a photo a hundred times more powerful sure that's at least how i like to approach stuff so with this it just was like you know it should be more than photos. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think for me, because my work has been so varied over the years, like I'm a photographer now, but in my past, I literally worked in communications. I told stories, I crafted things for the press. Um, it felt only right to marry those two concentrations together Mm -hmm. and knowing that the combination of those things would be better. So for me, and I also, there's something that's kind of exciting to me about blurring different disciplines in ways that people, you know, the more, the more disciplines you combine in a project, sometimes the more confusing it is for people because they don't know what bucket to put it in. And I kind of like that. Like, it just makes people think a little more too of, you know, the amount of people who are like, what is techies? I'm like. I don't know. You figure it out. Like I, I actually like that. You know, they don't, they don't know exactly. Is it a, is it a journalism endeavor? Is it a documentary? Is it, you know, a blog? Is it a photo project? Like a lot of people are, they've spent so much time trying to put it in a bucket, and it kind of, I enjoy that it gets people's wheels turning in that way. Mm. Um, and I think there are a lot of artists out there who do a really great job of combining mediums like way more than i do you know people who like jonathan harris who does these crazy like digital design engineering hybrids on the internet Mm -hmm. um and you know people don't really know what to make of it and and i just i think like riding the line between disciplines adds adds something to the work sure that was a very long-winded answer to that question
0: (laughs) no it made sense so (laughs) You
2: know,
0: how many people ultimately did you end up interviewing
1: and shooting? A little over 100. Uh-huh. So my goal was to get 100 people um, in techies. And pretty soon I realized that if you only interview 100 people, some of those people are going to flake and your project's going to be screwed. So sure. I I think I maybe ended up doing like 100, somewhere between 105 and 110 interviews total. Uh-huh. And then ended up, you know, keeping the best hundred. And um and yeah, it was it was a lot.
0: Gotcha. When you when you were initially choosing those people to shoot, since you got over five hundred applications, was what was it that stood out to you about those people? Because you've got to cull down from a certain amount. And I realize, you know, some of them probably just put in their name and their email address and you know, those yeah. are easy to cut out, but you know. Yeah. The, the people who actually have compelling stories and filled out the form where you want to learn more about them. How did you, how did you call that down?
1: So I wanted to get, I mean, for lack of a better word, I wanted to get a diverse group of folks. Right. Sure. But that didn't necessarily mean like I need 40% people of color and 5% disabled, you know, it was, It was more like, I want to find a hundred different stories, Mm -hmm. like totally different. And, you know, with 500 applications, I felt like that was, that was possible. So Mm -hmm. I kind of went based on, I wanted to find people who had a pretty hard time getting to where they are today. Like they have faced some struggles, you know, whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. And then the next criteria was, you know, I want people who have done work that they're proud of like people who have come here and done something really great and something really impressive.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And then kind of the third part is, you know, I wanted to talk to people who despite that have still faced hardships in the industry, Mm -hmm. but they also, you know, love tech and, and they're still here and they're here because they want to see it get better. Um, That was kind of the complicated arc that, I was hoping to illustrate mostly because that was my experience, you Uh know, like really unconventional path to tech, was really proud of the work that I did in tech, but it still was really hard being in tech. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I still love tech and want to make it better. And I just had a feeling there were people out there that had a similar arc to mine that manifested in really, really different ways. Um, And sure enough, there are a lot of those people out there. So I kind of come through the stories that really fit that general arc. And then from there really tried to choose stories that all felt different in their own way. So it was a long process.
0: I can imagine during, during the process, did you end up with, I realize this is like asking you to pick your favorite kid, but did you end (laughs) up with a favorite story and a favorite, you know, picture to go along with that?
1: Um, Favorite picture and favorite story were usually two different things.
0: And um, uh, that was going to be my next question. So, <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because the, the requirements of like a favorite picture to me are like so many different things, right? Sure. It's like, yeah. is it technically sound? How is the light hitting the contours of their face? Right. Um, like how comfortable are, are they on camera? Do I feel like I captured them successfully in a way that, you know, fits the context of their own story? Mm-hmm. There's all of that. Um, and you know, I think my favorite photos from that project, um, were not necessarily in correspondence to my favorite stories from the project. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's like, there's so many different ways to define the favorite too. It's like, there were some stories that just like rocked me, you know, Mm. like profoundly. Um, and then there were people whose stories, were really great. And then also my relationship with them ended up being really great. Like I became, I just did a call earlier today with a a guy that I met because he was in techies project and we just caught up on the phone. Mm -hmm. Um, so like I have all these different, um, you know, positive memories of all of these different people for different reasons. But I think, you know, the first interview I have on techies is Nancy Duyon, who's like, just a force of nature and I love my photo of her and her story is crazy Mm -hmm. and she's just an amazing person and we still have a really close relationship today. Like that's kind of like, you know, three strikes, wham, bam. This is like a great part of the project. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's, it's so, it's like what you said, picking your favorite kid. It's like all of those interviews really profoundly affected me and it's, pretty hard to whittle it down.
0: Well, and I'm assuming since, you know, you pick people with different stories and, you know, wanted to make sure that each story was as individual as possible, that they all, you know, affected you in different ways too.
1: Yeah. I mean, like I'm kind of an empath, you know, like mm-hmm. I have a pretty hard time not getting emotionally involved in things. And I know, so I that feeling well. Yeah. And so, you know, the, doing this project was like, I mean, I needed therapy after this project for like mm-hmm. two years. I'm, you know, it's like it was so intense for me doing these hundred interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, not only like taking in all of their stories, but then also being responsible for those stories mm-hmm. and how they're let out into the world, and then being responsible for how the world reacts to those stories. Like, holy shit, that is like a very—it's very heavy. I didn't anticipate how heavy it was going to be. I had no idea. Can you
0: explain to me how the that feeling of responsibility?
1: Um, I mean, you know, I approach everything with a PR brain because that's my background. Sure. And so I knew that I knew that I ultimately didn't have control over this project once it was put out into the world, Mm -hmm. but I had, I had full control over how the project was made and presented. Right.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So I was able to kind of anticipate the ways that I could see this project ruffling some feathers, making some people angry, um, and just really do my best to approach the project in ways that were, you know, done with integrity, you know, trying to follow all of the moral codes of, you know, journalism and art. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, trying to have as much, just be really cognizant about how these stories are presented and that these people feel protected. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, everybody in techies had the ability to view their interview in final form before it went live. And if there was anything in there that they felt, you know, unsafe about or uncomfortable about, about, they were able to remove it, which of course, like no journalist would do that, but I'm not a journalist. Like (laughs) I'm whatever, you know, I'm whatever people think I am. And so for me, you know, it was really important just to prioritize the idea that I want these people to have their story told the way that they want it told. Um, And so that, you know, was one of those things where if if I follow those protocols, I can launch this into the world and know that everybody involved personally felt like they were represented appropriately. And -hmm. then, but beyond that, it's out of our control, right?
0: Sure. Well, I mean, so specific, not specifically, because that would be weird and awkward, but (laughs) whose feathers were you worried about it ruffling?
1: Um, I mean, for the most part, just angry dudes. Um, Those are usually the feathers that I end up ruffling. Um, But, you know, for... White bros? Maybe. um, (laughs) You know, just people that would view this project as like some angry chick, you know, making making a project out of a problem that doesn't exist. Right. But Uh that's also a reason I did the project because I already knew that there were a lot of people that thought that the idea that certain types of people were being treated better than others in Silicon Valley is crazy. You know, like there was the idea that that Silicon Valley was
0: white dudes.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So, but you know, the idea that, that for so long, like from the, the first years I worked in tech, like, the whole idea that tech was this perfect meritocracy was preached and preached and preached you know what i mean like the carpet of the github offices like has the word meritocracy like on the carpet you know it's it's oh, been this Jesus. thing that silicon valley is so proud of and in so many ways yes silicon valley is a a meritocracy compared to other industries like yes you can go and and enter it like me a person with you know no technical degree Mm-hmm. went to a state school in North Carolina, I figured out how to make it work for me. Mm-hmm. And yes, there are people that can come here with no college degree or or you know whatever and come and make it big. You know, the whole, you know, idea of the the college dropout who becomes the billionaire. like that's that's what the meritocracy is built off of,
0: yeah, not um, everybody's Zuckerberg, though
1: <laughs> right. and and not every college dropout is, you know, a cute white boy from Harvard who, you know, it's just like, it's a flawed story, right? Right. And so that was a big reason I wanted to do techies in the first place to very gently introduce the idea Mm -hmm. that, Hey, maybe it's not as much of American photography as you think. It's cool that you thought that because you would have no idea otherwise, Mm -hmm. but Hey, like here's some alternative stories that might change your mind on that. And so a lot of those feathers were ruffled um, usually in like really silly ways, you know, of like just bros being like, this project's stupid. These photos suck. Like (laughs) this girl sucks. She's like just a blonde girl, you know, just like dumb shit. Um, But you know, there were other feathers ruffled too. Like um, there's a a huge contingent of, you know, the actual diversity community Mm -hmm. that was really upset about this project because it was made by a white chick and that's valid, you know, like something that I took away from this project and it took some therapy, but it really taught me or it didn't teach me. I kind of had to come to this myself, but the realization that when people, when you create something that's public. Mm -hmm. And people hate you for it. They don't actually hate you. Like, these people don't know me. They don't know anything about my story or how I made this project or anything that led up to it. But they they really hate what I represent, right? So, like, these angry bros hate that I'm, like, some blonde chick that's, like, presumably mad that, like, the world's not going my way. And so I made a mad project, you know? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) so a lot of projection
0: and that those projects shine the light on what they're trying to ignore
1: right and then to you know have a community of color upset that a white woman is getting all of this attention for diversity project like that is super valid Mm -hmm. and i realized it took me a while to realize like they're not attacking me and saying i as a person don't deserve this but it's the idea that it's kind of bullshit that another big diversity story in the news is at, 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 has a white woman at the home. Right. You know, it took me a while to, to get there and not feel like total shit about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, you know, it's really shaped how I approach work and really anything in life um, from that point forward where I used to care a lot about what people think of me.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the more and more I do work that get seen by people who don't know me, the more I realize that ultimately, you know, anyone who hates the work or, you know, even thinks that they, you know, don't like me as a, a human. Um, I don't really need to take it as personally sure. because it's just, I'm just a representation of something. And that gives me the freedom to actually do more of the work that I want to do. Right. Cause right. I'm not worried about, how I will be perceived.
0: Gotcha. I mean, did, did those feelings really come about initially when this, when the project started picking up steam and started getting featured on like CNN and you know, all the news stations and stuff like this?
1: Yeah. I mean, at first, you know, it was all like oh my God, this is getting so much attention. This is amazing. Um, and I'd already learned at this point not to read the comments on stuff because like, (laughs) you know, even the early interviews that I did about my own career, you know, like when I used to do podcasts or interviews about like, how did you become this like really successful photographer in Silicon Valley? You know, there are a lot of mad bros, um, in those (laughs) comments. So I've just, I already knew not to read a lot of people's opinions on the internet. You know, I Mm. knew that, but, um, but then, yeah, I mean, once your project gets big enough, like, the negativity will find you, oh, even yeah. if you're not looking. Yeah. And, you know, Twitter, you know, I love and hate Twitter. Twitter was the <laughs> place where it, it found me, you know. Yes. Like, I had to take a little Twitter vacay because uh, it found me real hard, you know. Like, it found me, an army found me.
2: Yeah.
1: And so, you know, again, it's, the Twitter loves to hate a different person every day. This is true. Um, and you know, I was that person for a handful of days, but you know, again, it was, it was really hard at the time. And at the same time, it taught me a lot about, you know, just what to expect when you launch a piece of work that's public and opinionated. And like, if you can handle that mm-hmm. and you still want to make the work, then you should make the work.
0: Gotcha. So, so speaking of public and opinionated projects, you know, I I think the one of the the other big one that got a lot of attention that comes to mind right off top of my head is the Pussy Project. Um, Yes, which as a um, middle aged white guy makes me feel uncomfortable just saying the name, which I think is part of the reasoning behind that. Um, Yep. So obviously you know i'm sure you've had to deal with some of the themes you you tackled in the project but what was what was that like and what was the impetus impetus behind that
1: um well at that point you know i'd already done techies
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so i i already had a really successful practice run at making a project that involved a large amount of interviews. Right. So sure. at that point I kind of, I had a machine built and I knew how to do something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, that was much simpler. That was just like, I'm, I'm mad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this election sucks. And I'm like, I'm finding myself mad about politics. Um, and so maybe I should do a project. Um, and you know, the deeper theme behind it was, you know, I found it really interesting that me included, like a woman who grew up in the South, was Mm -hmm. raised in a Republican family, was literally in the teenage Republicans, then, you know, went to college, Um, you know, long story short, I went through a a few tragedies, like early in college, like my dad died, my stepdad left, Mm -hmm. I went from being this like, upper middle class, like, you know, Southern girl to like being this super poor girl who had to get a job serving Mm -hmm. drinks in the club at 18. So like totally rocked my, my old school views on like, I have this lifestyle because me and my family deserve it. You know, like this whole, you know, this whole ethos that is deeply baked into white Southern culture. Like all that got destroyed for me really fast and forced me to, to re-examine my entire political ideology. So, I came out of those years being someone who is a liberal person, who is extremely pro, um, you know, pro empathy and sympathy and, Mm -hmm. you know, many forms of taking care of your fellow person because a lot of times people get dealt a bad hand. Sure. And so, but at the same time, I played it neutral politically. For a long time, more just like, oh, I don't want to talk about politics. Like, you know, I'm just going to talk about other things and I'm not going to be very political and I'm just not going to worry about it. I'm not going to read about politics. I'm just going to kind of stay out, mm-hmm. um, which is something that you can do when you are a person who's not profoundly affected by politics. Right. Like right. I'm, a, I'm a white girl. Like I went to college um, And I built a life that was, that was okay for myself. So like, I don't have to be that involved in politics. And so then, you know, this election comes around and there's suddenly I'm getting angry and I'm getting, I think there was, there was a lot about the election that provoked a lot of women who (laughs) played it neutral, you know, like Uh I think a lot of the pussy grabbing Donald Trump stuff, like all of. All of these kind of new revelations around sexism and racism, um, immigration rights, like all of this stuff coming up where it's like, wow, like America's actually kind of fucked up. And <laughs> a lot so of so many levels. Yeah. And a, a lot of us, you know, a lot of us white women from, you know, decent backgrounds would have no idea.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I just watched a lot of women in particular suddenly like waking up, you know, mm-hmm me included. And that was, that was really interesting to me. And I wanted to do a project around that. And so that's kind of where the impetus for the pussy project came from. Mm -hmm. So the, the difference really was, I only had like, uh, maybe I forget, I think it was like two weeks. I Mm -hmm. think I needed to do it in two weeks. Um, because I think I had the idea in October or something and I needed to finish this before the election. Sure. So yeah, that, I that another call that, out. that
0: whole pussy grabbing thing came out about a month before the election.
1: Yeah. So I put a call for subjects out and, you know, the same goal. Like I wanted to find women ideally from many different places, like from different states, from different countries, from different ideological backgrounds, different political backgrounds, mm-hmm. race, sexuality, um, you know, uh, I wanted to find a really big mix of women and just kind of dig into that idea of like, you know, what, what does this election mean to you? Because it's certainly affected me Mm -hmm. and you know, how I feel about politics. It's undoubtedly affected other women in really significant different ways. So that's really how I approached it. And then I ended up with 50 different interviews um, from 50 different women about why they were mad Mm -hmm. so
0: what was there a consistent theme that made people mad throughout it
1: no other than you know i think all of these women felt themselves threatened right Mm -hmm. or like whatever bucket they fall into they felt threatened Mm-hmm. Um and I think this is this was the first election where a political candidate made every bucket feel threatened. Yeah. Um though I would argue if I had done this project in the South or North Carolina where I came from, I would get quite a different set of responses, right? Uh-huh. So living um, in the
0: South, yes. Unfortunately. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I grew up with those people and you know for a good chunk of my childhood I identified with those people.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: you know, I, I know that they're out there. Um, but in this case, I really wanted to focus on, you know, these are women who really feel threatened and have personal experiences that would justify while they feel threatened, whether mm-hmm. they've been, you know, just a, a woman who's been sexually harassed and she was super triggered by the fact that this dude is running for president or, you know, a, a woman who's literally her rights as a you know an immigrant are actually being threatened or you know mm-hmm. the, just the whole gamut like I wanted to I wanted to build something that for someone who was kind of dubious about the idea that this is actually a big deal you know
2: mm-hmm.
1: like the you know maybe the third party voter or the apathetic conservative or whatever who's like whatever if Trump gets elected it's not a huge deal he's gonna just you know, shake things up like i know i've heard a lot of that in north carolina um <laughs> well just the I mean, technically, you know not wrong he's yeah, shaking things so, up right but you know and of course why would they have any reason to think otherwise so here's a project that's like hey actually you know not only would he be shaking things up but there's a, there's actually a lot at stake. Um, maybe not for you reader, Mm -hmm. but for, for these 50 women, like here's some pretty real examples of, of what could be at stake.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, and you know, whether or not a bunch of people who needed to read it, read it, you know, that's another question. Cause at that point I really stopped looking at the internet to see how they feel about my project.
0: (laughs) That's probably a good idea.
1: Yeah. Um, but you know, I just wanted to put it into the world and and see you know what happened so
0: was I mean was there any feedback that you got from the project that made it worthwhile for you
1: well that's the thing that I learned from techies right it's mm-hmm. like when I did techies I cared so much about what other people thought of techies
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I still you know my PR brain helped me approach techies in a way that I knew I was so proud of it when I launched it sure but then lessons that I learned from techies was like, don't even look for validation or hate or anything in between, like put it out into the world. Mm -hmm. And just, if you're proud of it, then it's, you're good. You Mm -hmm. put it out there and you will, you know, undoubtedly receive both praise and hate. And Mm -hmm. maybe you just don't need to know any of it. And so that's really how I approached The Pussy Project. Like, I honestly, to this day, don't even really know what people thought of it. I know that a lot of people had opinions on it, Mm -hmm. and I don't know what they are. (laughs) And that's okay, you know? Right. I know that it got a bunch of press, and, you know, I know from the reporters that I talked to that, you know, they liked it and they wanted to talk about it, but that's really as far as it went. Mm -hmm. Um, I was definitely scared on a different level for my safety and the safety of the people in it.
0: That that's something I was curious about is you know because that's well that that one was a lot more in people's faces than techies was even mm-hmm. and just the the way you named it the subject matter behind it and and all of the turmoil that was already going on with the election cycle that had people riled up is you know. When I saw it, I was like, "Oh, that's you know <laughs> something bad might come from that," and I'm not <laughs> a
1: little yeah. concerned. Yeah, so you know, definitely, I've I've already you know in years past, I've already been fucked with online by you know random anonymous trolls, and mm-hmm. just because I'm a a person on Twitter sure. Um, that has like a few extra followers than another person. Mm-hmm. And so they see me as a target and they like to fuck with me. And well, so I've, and, I've and been and through unfortunately, that. Uh, well,
0: not unfortunately, but also because you're a woman, they find that easier too.
1: Right. And I think, you know, those early experiences I had with anonymous people on the internet trying to mess with my safety, um, that taught me just how to be extra secure online. Mm-hmm. So I already knew all the precautions that I should take personally to protect myself, like have encrypted unique passwords mm-hmm. and, you know, like just the basic one oh ones of how to not be hackable, um, you know, register all my domains privately, like you know, operate out of a P.O. box like I've just done everything to, to be protected myself. Mm -hmm. And so a big part of this project with the participants was like, Hey, you know, this is probably what could happen. I'm not saying that it's going to happen, but it's very likely that it could happen. So I would strongly encourage all of you to do these things Mm -hmm. to be safe. Um, and you know, I, I purposely didn't include their full names. I changed a lot of their names Mm -hmm. by requests, like, I did as much as I could to protect them. Mm -hmm. And um, to my knowledge, no one um no one got messed with, uh, mostly because they're they were not as easy to find uh, because of their names. Um and really the only person that actually tried to threaten to dox me was a woman that I ended up cutting from the project. So, (laughs) So um yeah, I mean, again, I probably had people trying to mess with me like I definitely had an increased amount of, you know, emails being like, here's a password reset key, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, had had more of those. But again, I've just learned from previous experiences, like, okay, these are the things that I need to have lined up. Mm -hmm. And, and again, you know, these people could do, you know, do things to harm me, but techies really taught me to care a little bit less about that.
0: I, I can imagine. So, so kind of fast forwarding to this year, cause this has been a big year for you, um, both personally and professionally. How, how have things changed for you over this past year?
1: Um, oh man, I mean, you know, after that year of personal projects, I was like, whoa, personal projects are really intense. I need to not do those for a while. Sure. So, um, you know, for the last couple of years, I guess I launched those in 2016. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the next couple of years, I really just did a lot of like self work. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, like those projects definitely made me realize I have a lot of my own triggers, um, around like, you know, what, what people think of me or, you know, just a lot of deep baggage came Mm -hmm. out when I did those projects. So spent a lot of time in therapy, really glad I did um, spent a lot of time figuring out what my next steps for work were going to be. Um, because I, you know, had an agent at the time that I was doing those projects and that's kind of like every photographer's dream, you know, like
0: somebody brings the work to me.
1: Right. And, and you don't get repped, you know, like I remember thinking like, Oh, I want to get repped someday. And I would talk to, you know people about like what do you do to get repped and they're like you can't get repped you can't choose to get repped mm-hmm. like reps have to come to you and you have to be one of the best of the best mm-hmm. so um you know when an agent came to me to represent me it was like oh wow um didn't realize that that could happen um but actually you know after a couple of years of being repped i realized that i don't i didn't actually want that
2: mm-hmm.
1: um i missed running my own business i really missed like being in charge of my own shoots. Um, I, I missed being in control, you know, mm-hmm. of my future. Um, and the kind of work that I wanted to do, it, it just kind of, it felt like I'd passed off so many things that were important to me and I didn't really feel in control of my future anymore. So um, I spent a lot of time thinking about well, what would my life look like if i left having an agent? Because that's, you know, so far, what I've been taught is the only path. Like, you work as a photographer until you get good enough to have an agent, and then you're one of the best photographers ever. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what everybody told me is the way that things go. Sure. And so, if I leave my agent and like don't really want another agent, then what's my future as a photographer? So, a lot of a lot of thinking time. Um, and so, that's kind of where, you know where the idea of launching my own studio came from, Mm -hmm. which I did in January. Um, you know, I spend like way too much time just observing markets and observing, just keeping an eye on everything to see Mm -hmm. like, where are markets going? What are people paying for? What, you know, things are startups trying to disrupt? What are they failing to disrupt? What are people willing to pay for? What are they not? And figuring out, how that relates to me and my future? Sure. And obviously, photography is quite a uh, quite a changing industry.
2: Mm-hmm. In
1: that way, you know, you've got startups out there trying to, you know, <laughs> eliminate paid photography. You've got like the whole gamut, you've, and everybody's a photographer now, and everybody can get photos for free. And mm. and so there's really kind of this question of, you know, where do I fit into that long term as a photographer that actually charges for my work? And Something that I noticed when I was repped, you know, I'm doing all these bigger productions. I'm going to ad agencies. I'm having all these meetings, Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm learning that big advertising is dwindling. Yeah, every time I'd go into a big agency meeting, they were doing a reorg when I was there. You know, like Mm -hmm. I'd even have people be like, "Yeah, so it's really funny that you're here today. Like, we don't even know if we're going to work here tomorrow." (laughs) Um, But if you still want to like, talk to us, you can. I just kept experiencing that over and over again. Like all of these agencies were laying off people and they just, you know, budgets were going down. And so advertising was sweating Mm -hmm. and I just kind of had a hunch, like, you know, this is what we've all been told as photographers is like our ultimate future. And maybe it's not because it seems like ad agencies are shrinking and budgets are shrinking and the amount of jobs are shrinking. Mm -hmm. And so I started looking around like, well, what is doing well, you know? Um, And then you've got this whole new league of kind of new on the block photographers. I mean, I certainly somewhat fit into that category because I became a photographer in 2013 Mm -hmm. when everybody else did in the world. But (laughs) there's, there's, you know, this, this new league of photographers that are new school They're not repped. They don't have, you know, any background in photography or advertising. And they're, you know, like doing Instagram campaigns or they're doing, you know, all this other work. But, you know, I know enough people on that side of things to know that most people actually aren't making money doing that. Sure. Um, and so I knew that wasn't the way that I wanted to go. And so, you know, more poking and prodding and I'm learning, you know, and at the same time, I know that I'm still making money. So I'm doing something right. I just mm-hmm. have to figure out what that is and double down on it. So I, I noticed that who's really doing well is these smaller agencies um, and creative individuals who kind of know how to do old school. Like they know how to make really world class content
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: because they've done it before. Um, either they you know come from big advertising or they've worked enough in it just to understand how production works Mm -hmm. and like how to make really stellar, like reliably good content, you know, like everybody can make a beautiful photo, but there's a certain league of creators that can reliably do it every time. Right. So there's that league and, and they can do that, but they are scrappy enough that they've learned how to do it for much less Mm. where like an old school ad spend could be like a million bucks for a photo shoot. Easy. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, those same shoots have like a budget of Mm
2: $200,000
1: or a shoot that used to be $200,000 is now $20,000. Like the budgets have just gone down a lot. And so you've got this league of people that have survived that know how to make this great content and they've done it the old school way, but they just know how to do it for less because they know what costs don't matter. And historically, a lot of those costs are like kind of silly lifestyle overhead costs. It's like, do you really need to fly in that whole crew from New York? And do you really need to stay at that really nice hotel? And do you really need to do that fancy client dinner? Mm -hmm. And, you know, do you really need to pay like all of this overhead for this agency that has 200 people? Like, do you really need all those costs? Um, So the people that have really figured out how to do this work without all those extra costs, they're surviving. So that's where I was like, okay, I need to go that route. Like, I basically need to enter the small agency territory. Mm -hmm. And I know how to do big productions because I was repped and I was in the big commercial world for a couple of years. And I learned all about production. Mm -hmm. And so I know how to do it. And I also know how to handle creative because my first years in Silicon Valley, I just did it all because there was no one else to do it. And I also know how to shoot reliably. And (laughs) I, I just, I know, I know how to do all these things. So I need to take a step beyond what I'm doing now. And I need to officially make that my business, um, like actually handling all of those aspects. So that led to me launching a creative production studio in January.
0: Gotcha. Now my question is why did you choose January when you're having a kid in just a couple of weeks?
1: <laughs> Partially literally because of that. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, you know, just the idea of launching a company at 6 months pregnant sounded kind of fun and radical.
2: Uh,
0: it's
1: um, something. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I mean, really, so I've been I've been thinking about I think I bought dagmarstudios.com mm-hmm. in July. Okay. And I found out I was pregnant in August, mm-hmm. so it was also kind of one of those things where it was like, well, <laughs> I guess I'm going to do both of these at the same time. Um, it wasn't totally a strategic decision; it wasn't totally in my control. Sure. Um, but you know, for me, it's like you know, I'll have this baby, and pregnant people have launched companies before, True. and. I have an amazing full-time producer that handles a bunch of stuff for me and I am really good at delegating at this point in my life and I have an amazing crew and like, we'll keep running, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like, I will figure it out. I always do. So I will be, you know, an exhausted zombie milk machine (laughs) while I'm doing it. But, you know, I am, I'm pretty sure I can do it. I've like definitely worked in uh, in much scarier circumstances than these. I think, um, even though I certainly have no idea what the early stages of motherhood are going to be like. Mm-hmm. I've just I've worked through some pretty horrible constraints at other times in my life, and I feel like I'm going to be able to handle it.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Well, kind of wrapping up here. I I normally would ask, what do you? what exciting do you have coming up? But, you know, I already know the answer to that. You just started a company, you just got married and you're having a kid. So,
1: yeah, I mean, you know, what's really exciting to me is just growing this business, figuring out how I'm going to grow it. Um, You know, it's, it's been really great that, it's already been so busy. I mean, mm-hmm. like, the basically, the moment I got pregnant, the world was like, do you want all of the shoots ever? And do you want to <laughs> fly all over the world making pictures? Like, it's absurd how much work I've done mm-hmm. in the last six or seven months. It's crazy. I think I've maybe been on, like, 30 flights for work. It's Ooh. amazing.
0: Racking up those um, frequent flyer miles.
1: I know. Um, and I'm an expert at the pat-down now. It's like, man, I'm such an airport pro. But... <laughs> you know it's it's just a matter of like okay you know i'm just going to get through these first couple of months of being you know a a person with a baby who needs to be on my body all the time
2: mm-hmm.
1: and you know still figure out how i can work during that time without you know wanting to die and and then just slowly figure out how am i going to scale this thing you know it's it's one thing to be really busy on my own but it's a question of, you know, do I want to bring on more photographers? Do I want to eventually open different Dagmar Studios in different parts of the country? There's like, there's all these things going through my head. Mm. Um, but it's also, you know, I think having a baby helps you uh, learn how to slow down and not worry too much about that stuff yet. and
0: Yes. Just also helps you get, prioritize. Get through
1: the first stuff first. <laughs> yeah. Well, awesome. So.
0: Well, Helena. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Um, where can people you. find you online?
1: Um, you can find me at helenaprice.com. That's kind of where you can find all of my my interwebs stuff mm. and some of my portfolio. And then you can find uh, my work and get in touch if you want to work with me at dagmarstudios.com. Awesome.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: Thank you. It was
0: great talking with you and getting to know you a little better.
1: Thanks. Same. And I'm so glad I didn't go into labor on this call. Very happy.
0: You and me both. Though <laughs> so it would have made for a great story for both of us.
1: Agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Helena, cool.
0: thank you. And go out and hug some next.
1: All right. Have a good one.
0: You too. You can find out more about Helena on Twitter at Helena and be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with her. You can keep up with the podcast on Twitter and Facebook at Creative S.O. Pod and follow Creative South on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creative South G.A. Whoever at creativesouth.com. And I'm at Jay Frost on Dribble, Twitter and Instagram. Jack Prince is giving Creative South podcast listeners 15% off all orders over $25 when you use promo code SOUTH15OFF at checkout. Visit jackprince.com for your next order of stickers, prints, or whatever you need today. For a limited time, new Skillshare customers can get their first three months for just 99 cents to get unlimited access to thousands of classes when you sign up at Skillshare.com using promo code Creative South. What are you waiting for? Start learning today. And... Remember, if you like the show, help support us over at patreon.com/slash creative south. And if you like the creative south podcast, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play Music, rate us, and leave a review. This helps more people find the podcast and allows us to keep getting awesome guests. Now go out and hug some necks.